Well, good morning again, and welcome to those from, from Chattanooga. I'm glad you guys were able to make it. And so for those of you that weren't here, so I'm uh, Father Francis Orozco. I'm the, the novice master for the province of St. Martin de Porres, for the, the southern province in the U.S. And maybe I'll say something about our province. Um, I'm not sure how much of this you know. Um, just to kind of give a little history, um, and maybe why you don't see as many of us as, uh, from you know, your own province as others, um, probably because there's, there's fewer of us. So the, uh, the province of St. Joseph, the eastern province, was the first sort of Domin- uh, permanent foundation of Dominican friars in the U.S. was founded in 1805. Then later uh, came the province of the Holy Name of Jesus, or the Most Holy Name of Jesus, uh, in the West Coast, which was founded in 1850. Then in 1939, the province of St. Joseph Uh, because it was so large, essentially the Rocky Mountains to the East Coast um, decided to to kind of split into two provinces. The province of St. Albert the Great was founded in 1939, the central province. And so from 1939, there were three provinces in the U.S. Um, The headquarters of the uh, province of St. Joseph are in New York and the province of St. Albert in Chicago. Um, The studies for the province of St. Joseph happened in Washington, D.C., and for the province of St. Albert the Great happened in Dubuque, Iowa. And then they were coming down into Tennessee and Florida and Texas and Alabama and Mississippi. It's a very different culture uh, than sort of the Midwest and the Northeast. And so the two provinces together, um, the East and the Central, had a very similar idea to do something different with the southern part of their province. And um, this is sort of a very abbreviated version Um, the two provinces met and decided to give up part of their territory um, to form a southern province, a province of St. Martin de Porres, um, which which is basically the states of Texas and Oklahoma, then all the way east from Florida to North Carolina, and all of the states in between. And so the province of St. Martin de Porres, the southern province, was founded in 1979, so fairly recently compared to the other three. And... um, so we're the youngest province in the U.S. We're also the smallest. Um, in 2010, which wasn't terribly long ago, um, we reached sort of a milestone in the province. That is, half of the friars uh, in the province uh, came from one of the other two provinces, the east and the central, and then the other half entered the province after it formed. And so we're kind of still in that transitional part of our life as a province where um, We have friars, essentially, that were formed in many different ways. Some were formed in Washington, D.C., and in other parts. Some were formed in Iowa and in other parts. And then those of us in the south, um, our novitiate is in Dallas, Texas. And so there's still kind of a a, a jumble, if you want to call it that. Um, But as we grow into a province, um, we reflect the south even more because the men that are entering come from from our area, from Texas, from Florida, from Tennessee. Um, This year, we're expecting a class of five. Um, three are from Texas, one is from Oklahoma, and then one is from Arkansas. So we're definitely, you know, we're becoming uh, very reflective of the South, and we, we hope to keep growing, obviously, as the, as the future continues to unfold. Um, so I want to tell you something that, that I hear quite a bit. When I was the vocation director, um, I would go around to different campus ministries and parishes and conferences and events and all of this stuff, and I would hear people from all over the spectrum, your age, my age, older people, Catholics, 
of all types would often say, if I can just, would say some version of this anyway, they would say, if I can just make it to the end of my life and be free of mortal sin, then I'm good to go. I'll go, I'll go right to heaven and everything will be fine. Now, that, isn't, that is not a, a false belief necessarily, but, but I don't like it when people think of their faith in this way, um, that this is what our whole life is about. It's just avoiding sin. In a way, just keep things exactly the way they are. I come out of confession uh, you know, with a cleansed soul, and if I can just stay like this forever, you know, for the next 30, 60, whatever years, then, then I'll be okay. Um, and so... Uh, again, not necessarily false, but our life should just be more than just simply avoiding sin. So I want to read a short excerpt from this book called The Intellectual Life, um, written by a Dominican whose name I cannot pronounce. Um, but Sertilange uh, is what I'm going to try to try to say. It's how it's said. Um, he's talking about what's called what he calls the intellectual vocation, and this is translated, I believe, from from French. So, um, but it says. When we speak of vocation, we refer to those who intend to make intellectual work their life, whether they are entirely free to give themselves up to study or whether, though engaged in some calling, they hold happily in reserve as a supplement of their activity and as a reward, the development and deepening of their mind. So I would say most of us, including me, are in that second half. Um, We want to, to develop and deepen our mind. We want to grow closer to God in that way. And he says, I say the deepening in order to set aside the idea of a superficial tincture of knowledge. A vocation is not fulfilled by vague reading and a few scattered writings. It requires penetration and continuity and methodical effort so as to attain a fullness of development which will correspond to the call of the Spirit and to the resources that it has pleased him to bestow on us. One of the things that I've noticed um, as vocation director, for sure, but even before that, when I worked in campus ministry, and even now, to some extent, as the novice masters, uh, especially young people sometimes, and I include myself in this, um, hopefully I've matured some, but um, we want, or we're sometimes satisfied with a trivial uh, trivial is the wrong word, but with like a, a trivia type of knowledge. I know these seven or eight facts about these, this thing. I can go on Jeopardy and get all of them right in the religious category or something like that. Um, but maybe I don't go deeper than that. And so, um, so that's something we want to remember. So prayer is the foundation. But every, you know, as Dominican study is a big part of our life. But so our study should also be as deep as our prayer, not just sort of a trivia knowledge where I know these facts or these little tidbits of information, but I really know uh, enough to deepen, to have my study deepen that relationship with God. So I want to read um, from Matthew 25. It's a a little bit longer parable, Um, but it goes, I think, with this idea that that I mentioned earlier, that if I can just be free from sin, then I'm, I'm good to go. It was Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. Um, This is a different translation than I was using to prepare this, so some of the wording will be different, but but you're all going to get it. All right, 14. It says, For it will... Let me see here. 
so Jesus is reading one of the parables here. This is a different little heading, but it says, For it will be as when a man going on a journey called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traced and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of the house, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, and he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been, want, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not winnow. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But the master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I have not winnowed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. Now take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, where men will weep and gnash their teeth. What's interesting about this parable is that it really has nothing to do with sin. It's about someone doing, it's not about, it's not about someone doing something awful or malicious. What's the reward for the two servants who, who made more, who used their talents wisely? They shared their master's joy. And what's the reward of the third servant who was called wicked and, and slothful? He's thrown into the darkness where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth, where they will weep and gnash their teeth. Now, in other places in the Bible, in the scriptures, Jesus uses the notion of the master's joy to talk about heaven. And the idea of being cast out into the darkness with the wailing and grinding of teeth, Jesus uses that to talk about hell. And in a way, this, this should disturb us. And the reason why is that we often think, again, well, if I can just stay away from the big bad sins, I will get into heaven. But I think that Jesus gives us this parable to hopefully free us from that idea. You've probably heard this before, but in case you haven't, this is sort of a reminder that a talent is a sum of money. 
we're not talking about maybe the natural talents we have, but we're actually talking with something that's talking about something that's given to us. A talent is the sum of money, and it's a lot of money. It's a roughly about 15 years worth of wages. And so sometimes we do think that, well, the, the servant who got just the one talent, well, that's, that's not a lot of money, so not growing that isn't a big deal. But, but no, it's, it is a great deal of money. And this parable isn't just about money. It's not about being good at business. It's not about being rich or poor. It's about the greatest gift that God has given us. And so what is the greatest gift that God has given us? I often sometimes will ask this to others and they'll, they'll say lots of things. Um, but basically the greatest gift that God has given us is himself. And how does he give us hims, himself? What did he do? When did he do this? When does he do this for the first time? He does it at baptism. Baptizing someone especially a baby, is, is probably one of my favorite things to do as a priest, for lots of reasons. But I especially love the dialogue near the beginning of, of the rite. The, the priest asks the parents, what do you ask God's church for your child? And the parents respond. And there are lots of options. The most common option is baptism. Uh, but I'll often give the parents the option, and they'll, if they ask me, well, whatever you would like, Father, and I would just say, well, why don't you say the second option, which is the word faith. So the parents can respond, what do you ask God's church for, for your child? And I, I like when the parents respond, faith. The other responses, the other options are the grace of Christ or eternal life. And so the right gives us these options that the parents can say. This is when God instills his faith in us, is right at that beginning of, of our faith in Christ, of our life in Christ, in the sacrament of baptism. We bring ourselves and our children to the church because this is what we want. we want. We want baptism, yes, but we also want faith and the grace of Christ and eternal life. So linking back to this parable, it's, it's not about money or even skills. It's not about the ability to do math or to, to sing or some other type of, of talent. But we're talking about the faith, or I would argue anyway that we're talking about the the faith, the gift of faith itself. And so there are these three servants, and each gets a gift, a very large gift, according to each of their abilities. And the first two come back, they've doubled the gift, but the third, as we know, he buries it. He's afraid of, of losing it. He's afraid that his master will be upset if he does things wrong. How did the first two double their money? They invested it. So the way you double something, you increase it, is you give it to others, right? You give it to a person or to a group. You give it to a stock market, perhaps. But you have to give it to others in a way you have to let it go in order for it to grow. If you give it to someone and they, and they are successful, well, then you're going to be successful too. One of the most common questions that I get, and not just me, but people that, that seem to have a good faith life or are at least are perceived to have a good faith life is, uh, and I'm sure some of you have been asked this question too, is how do I grow in my faith? Or they'll make the statement, I want to grow in my faith. It seems like you, you have it, or at least you have more than I do. So how do I grow in it? How do I get what, what you have? In the parable we just heard, Jesus teaches us that, that we're, if we're, 
afraid of losing it, then you definitely shouldn't hide it. You definitely shouldn't go and bury it because he lost it and it was taken away from him. But how do we, how do, but how many people that we know, they, they do that. They come to church, they come to mass, and then they don't do anything. They don't invest that which they've received. This is the, this is a paradox in a way, but it's, it's really the key. How do you make faith if you could? How do you, how do you increase it? You have to invest it. You have to invest it in someone who has less than you do, even if you only have a little bit, even if you only think you have a little bit of faith, you still invest it. If you ask any teacher, maybe some of you are teachers, but if you ask any teacher, they'll tell you that if you want to learn a subject, you want to learn it really well, you have to start teaching it. You don't really learn what it is that you're talking about until you have to, until you dive in and figure out how to explain it to other people. And if you're thinking, gosh, I have so little faith, I really can't share it with anyone else, that's basically what the third servant was saying. And what may have been his excuses? Maybe he said, I'm not ready. I need to go to business school first before I invest it. I'm afraid of failure. I'm afraid of, of taking a risk. I would say that if the servant took a risk and if he lost that money, I bet the master would have been happier with him because he tried. This is what what Jesus gets at. He's given us this great gift of faith, and he doesn't want us to sit on it or bury it or do nothing with it. Sometimes we like to say, I have faith, and then we just sort of keep it to ourselves. We kind of put it in a jar, and then we put it on a shelf, And then we look at it and talk about how beautiful it is. We don't want it to go away. And it just sits there. Just sort of sits there on a mantle or a bookshelf. It's pretty and it's true. It's there. When I graduated college, I worked for three years before entering the Dominicans. And in those three years, um, I liked my job. It was for an insurance company, not what I thought I'd be doing, but there it was. But the job actually gave me a lot of freedom. It allowed me... Um, to have weekends free. I had regular work hours, so I had evenings free for the most part. So in those three years before I entered, I got really involved in my parish. And in a way, I, I, I kind of got suckered into teaching um, a seventh grade catechism class. And I say suckered not because I didn't enjoy it. I actually did end up enjoying it a lot, but because I was in a way told by some, these were Carmelite sisters, like father, or not, or not father, but at the time, uh, it was Jose, so I took the religious name, Francis. Uh, like, you know, we really need somebody to teach this class, and, you know, we see you a lot in church, and I was volunteering in another part of the parish, so they, they, they got to know me, and, um, and I said yes, uh, reluctantly, but I said yes. Um, and I don't think, and I know now, I mean, they didn't ask me because I thought I was, they thought I was very intelligent or super smart or anything like that, but they asked me because... Seventh grade is tough. Um, these are rowdy kids who think they know everything. And I was a man, a male, and most of the other teachers were women. And so they really wanted a guy to teach this class to kind of put the seventh graders in line. And, and I did end up doing that. Um, but that's one thing. The teaching is the other part. Um, 
because I didn't think I knew enough to, to teach them, but I took on this responsibility. And so I would, I would basically prepare my lessons a week ahead of time, right? Uh, basically working a week ahead of, of these students. Uh, would I probably do it again? I probably wouldn't, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm glad I did. Because uh, definitely I always look to that, to that part of my life uh, as very, very profound, a very moving experience for me that led me to, to realize that I, you know, that I might have this calling and that I can do this vocation. When I look back at it, but I hadn't done it, I don't know if I would be where I am. I don't know if I'd be a, a Dominican or a priest. Um, but before I even agreed to, to teaching the seventh grade class, I'm, I'm sure I thought of the same excuses. I didn't say re- yes right away. I said, you know, I said, let me think about it, and I'll tell you next week, sister. And I probably thought, I'm not ready. I didn't study theology. I don't have the time. I might fail. Um, I need to grow in my own faith first before I'm in charge of these, these young minds who are growing in the faith. But in preparing that lesson every single week, well, I learned so much. Because I, especially I got to know the students, I got to see how much they also wanted to learn amidst their, you know, sort of their rowdiness and their, you know, their middle school years. Like, there was still that thirst for, for wanting to know more about the faith. It was a rowdy group, and there would be those moments, of course, but there were so many times when these, these little interests popped up, and they wanted to know more about this one topic, and so I would learn about this one thing to kind of teach them again the next week on something that I knew they would be interested in, knowing that it was related to the faith. In the end, God doesn't want us to give our faith back to him in the same way that he gave it to us. If we give it back like that, I think God will say, well, good for you. <laughs> you kept the faith you know, pristine and spotless and pure. Nobody else, know you. Nobody else knew that you had it because you didn't share it with anyone. But, but thank you for giving it back to me. I think looking back at this parable, the master you know, would have wanted to just keep his money. Like if he really didn't want to lose the money at all, he would have just taken it with him when he traveled, if that was his goal was just to get it back exactly how it was given to them. He would have just kept it. But this master invests. God invests in us. He's done it with each and every one of us. He's given us faith so that we, in turn, can invest it with other people. If you want to grow in your faith, you have to invest, invest it in someone else. The faith that we received in baptism, especially if we were baptized as infants, is just a seed. It has tons of potential, but it's just a seed. If I give you a seed and you put it in a jar on your shelf, what's it going to do? It's not going to do anything. Because that's not why the seed was created, to be a showpiece or to be something that you just look at that's very pretty. You have to plant the seed. You have to put it in the the dirty ground. You have to put it somewhere where it may get damaged, it may get eaten, but it also has the very high potential to grow. And where do you plant it? Normally, if you have a seed, you don't plant it. And if somebody here is like a gardener or botanist or something, you can correct me. I'm open to that. Um, But you normally don't plant something like that in in a very lush garden and something that's already um, 
it's already sort of reached its potential, something that's already full and beautiful, because it already has tons of plants growing everywhere. You normally plant it in, in a field that's empty. And then you have to nourish it. You have to help it grow. You have to take care of it. And as you do that, your seed grows, the faith grows, but you also grow as well. And it's strange, it's, but it's true. I would say I learned so much in that year of teaching seventh grade more than I had before about the faith. And that's because, in a way, I was forced. I forced myself so that I could help those, those seventh graders understand what they were being invited into. Now, this doesn't mean that all of you now have to go out and sort of teach a middle school CCD class or anything like that. Um, but it does mean that you've all been given a great gift. And it's expected, I would say. I would say that you have the responsibility to share that gift, to invest it in other people. The parable, again, the parable, the lesson, it isn't about sin. It's about faithfulness. It's about responsibility. And so where do we go from here? Investing in people, evangelization is kind of the key word, the the buzzword, if you want to say that today. Spreading the faith. It's something that Dominicans have been doing since the beginning to contemplate and then to give or to share with others the fruits of that contemplation. Some people might say, well, I thought, I thought spreading the faith, I thought evangelization was, was sister's job or father's job. But it's not. It's, it's your job as well. There's a quote that I heard from a priest friend of mine, and I forget, he said that he heard it from somewhere else. Um, but it's, it's kind of silly, but it's true. The quote is, shepherds, don't make sheep. Sheep make sheep. So biologically, that's correct, right? Sheep make other sheep. Um, if, each, if each one of us just, just talks to or invests, takes the time to help one person, one person who isn't as strong in their faith, then you've, you've done it in a way, right? Not just with the seed. You don't just... With the seed, you don't just plant it and walk away. You have, to, you have to nourish it. Just when you invest with, even if it's just one person, you have to, in a way, walk with them. You have to help them grow in the faith. And in turn, that will likely also help you grow in your faith. I'm sure all of you know at least one person in your life that you can invest in. The great thing about, about this is that faith comes from God. God gives us the faith. God gives us the talents. The master doesn't say, I want you to go out and find the faith. I want you to go out and find the talents. He doesn't say that. He gives it. He freely gives it. So that that way, we can't, in a way, say that we own it or anything like that. He gives it to us so that we can give it to others. In a way, it's God telling us, I trust you. I believe in your ability. Take this. And invest it. And then when I come back, tell me how it went. So I'll leave you with a couple of quotes. And then we'll go into our adoration. Mother Teresa has uh, quoted lots of things. But she's also known for saying, God doesn't ask us to be successful. He asks us to be faithful. And the other one is... Uh, the quote will come at the very end, but maybe you all know this story about St. Dominic and the early order, 
It's the very beginnings of the order, and men are being attracted to St. Dominic and to the, to the preaching of the gospel. And so as the order, as, as more men are joining, um, Dominic, in a way, St. Dominic has a, a decision to make. Some people believe, some of the friars believe, okay, we should, we should all stay here and grow the order and get bigger and bigger, and then we can, we can go out. St. Dominic being a, uh, a man after the apostles, the apostles who followed Jesus, he's a man of Christ. What did Jesus do? He dispersed. He sent out the apostles, the disciples, two by two. And so St. Dominic gathered his, his friars, just a handful, maybe a little more, maybe it was around 15 or so. He gathered them, and then he, he told them to go to all, different, to all different parts of Europe. And so a few went to France, and a few to Spain, a few to England, a few to, to Scandinavia, and he, he sent them out. And some of the men resisted. They didn't want to do this because they believed this was going to be the death of the order. We have so few members, so why spread us out? Why, why do this? And Dominic is quoted as saying, hoarded grain rots. There's no reason to keep all of us together when, when he believed, and rightly so, that God was asking him to send out the men that God sent him to out to the whole world to preach the good news, hoarded grain rots. God has given us all this great gift of faith, and all he asks is that we share it. 